Welcome to Texas A&M University's Bush School of Government and Public Service in Washington, D.C. On the heels of celebrating 25 years as an established school in College Station, Texas, the Bush School D.C. is beginning our third year as a teaching site committed to national security and intelligence. My name is Alexander Joseph, and this is my colleague, Amy Hanstein, and we are second-year Masters of National Security and Intelligence students in the cohort at Bush School D.C. We are delighted to have you join us today for this special collaboration with Iron Butterfly Media. Iron Butterfly empowers women and minorities to create an outsized impact in our world. To the women of Iron Butterfly Media Project and our panel guests, thank you for sharing your story and paving the way for students like us who aspire to serve as you have served. Most importantly, we thank you for enriching our student experience, serving as mentors, industry partners, and friends of the Bush School. If this is your first visit, we hope to see you at a future event. Welcome to the Iron Butterfly podcast, sponsored by the National Security Institute and the amazing women of the IC, better known as AWIC. This episode is Iron Butterfly's first ever live podcast recording, sponsored by the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. Megan Jaffer and Katie Hopkins are the co-founders of Iron Butterfly Media and will be your hosts. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by the Honorable Sue Gordon, Laura Thomas, and Stephanie LaRue. The Honorable Sue Gordon is one of the nation's most respected intelligence professionals and a trusted voice on strategy, innovation, and leadership. She was confirmed as a Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence in 2017, where she became the nation's highest ranking career intelligence officer. Sue has over three decades of service, including both the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Laura Thomas is a former CIA case officer and chief of base who built and led sensitive programs at CIA headquarters and abroad in multiple international assignments. She has served over 18 years in national security and leadership roles, working across the industry, the IC, National Security Council, the Department of State, Department of Defense, U.S. Congress, and with foreign partners. She is currently the Chief of Staff in Strategic Initiatives at Inflection. Stephanie LaRue is the Chief of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, where she leads the implementation of the National DEI Strategy for the Intelligence Community. Stephanie previously served as the CIA's Chief Diversity Strategist and the Legal Attorney for CIA's Office of General Counsel. Amy and Alexandra, that was amazing. Thank you so much. And for everyone in the audience, if you haven't met these two uh, young women, I highly encourage you to chat with them. They are really impressive and we are very excited that they introduced us today and you did a great job. Thank you. They also told us that they first became friends talking about Iron Butterfly, which is very exciting to us. Yeah, it almost made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so we're going to get just jump right in. And I know um, that we've read your bios here and everyone knows how fabulous you women are, but I was hoping you could share with us um, something that most people don't know about you. And so I was or surprised to learn about you. And so I'm going to start with Sue. Ugh. Um, well, I'm delighted to be here. Amy and Alexandra are amazing. Do not leave without talking to them tonight. Um, well, this is hard because I'm old and I talk a lot. Uh, <laughs> here you go. I'm super shy. I'm not particularly ambitious. And I have almost no personal preferences. I'm just happy to be included. Right. And you're all and you're all laughing <laughs> because I don't think that's what people see. And I will tell you in a bizarre way, those attributes help propel me through my career. Let me show you. Um, number one, I, that is who I am. And if you know me well enough, you'll be able to see that that's there, even if it's not what I project. But when you take a job, it, you are borrowing that job and you have to do it. So even though you have to bring yourself, you have to do the job. You, you must do it. And so this idea of the duality between being comfortable with who you are and comfortable with your responsibility is, I think, super important as you go along the way. For me, what was interesting about my con combination of attributes is it meant that I was never choosing my course. Um, in fact, my career was almost always saying yes when someone asked me to do something. Even more importantly, if I look at my career, the moments where I was asked to do something that I didn't prefer and still saying yes turned out to be the transportation to something I couldn't have imagined if I had just been charting my own course. So I think one of the things that happens along the way is we're just happy to get that first job. And then all of a sudden we start having an opinion about what we will and won't do or what we're um, destined to do what we prefer to do. And I think that's all great. And you can make decisions for yourself, but understand that I think there's a joy in if you can just be as happy every day with your chance to be involved as you were the first time anyone involved you, there's some really amazing things that happen. And for me, that was how my career happened is that I just was happy to be included and tried to do my best every day. I love that, Sue. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I think that is something that most people don't know about you. So thanks for sharing. Um, how about you, Stephanie? I have all the preferences in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I want um, everything to be a specific way. Uh, but I think something about me, so one of the things uh, I really enjoy looking for opportunities to fail. And I know that sounds weird, um, but uh, Doing hard things, or lots of folks don't like to do that, right? They shy away from it. And so, but for me, looking for opportunities to fail is looking for things that, looking to do things that have never been done before, right? Looking to bring people together who don't usually come together. Uh, 
for me, it's a dare, right? If someone says, no, you can't do that, right? That's never been done before. That's not how we do it. The I see this, whatever. That for me is an invitation. Uh, and I really like those. And I, I don't know that everyone around me, my staff likes them, <laughs> uh, but I really like looking for opportunities uh, to fail. That's that's great. I like that. I hope the students are listening to, to this. Um, Laura. So I'm an avid horseback rider and I grew up riding horses. You know, I appreciate speaking at a Texas related event. I live in Texas now. Lots of horses there. Uh, nothing taught me how to recruit assets like having to train horses. And what do I mean by that? When you're working with a horse, a very large animal, it could kill you at any moment, but yet it wants to be with you. It wants to be in harmony with you. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to figure out how do I portray to this animal that is a prey animal and thinks I'm a predator, that I'm really here to just be with you and to be sort of part of your journey. And that's actually quite similar to recruiting a spy. And you're dealing with a human who is quite fearful, but ultimately wants to provide information to the U.S. government and wants to know that you're going to be the leader in a way that keeps them safe. And how do you project that you can lead the way, keep them safe at the same time, and that you can accomplish something together in harmony? So, Wow. What a great way to great start. Fun facts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> super different... Yeah, answers. answers <laughs> of people who have succeeded. So this this notion of people who would tell you that you must be some way mm -hmm. in order to be successful, yeah, they're not telling you the truth. Yeah. Figure out how to bring yourself and succeed. Mm. Absolutely. I would actually love to pull on that thread of authenticity. <laughs> and Stephanie, I'm going to pick on you first because... Megan and I agree that you're just one of the most authentic people <laughs> that we know. And I'm curious, what makes you authentically you in the intelligence community? And like, what makes you uniquely good? So I was talking to Sue about this a little earlier, and I feel like I'm a cocktail of crazy, and I probably shouldn't say that, but this is what I mean. <laughs> I, um, I am an incredibly vulnerable person. Uh, I'm also an empath, and I am incredibly compassionate. If I see someone cry, I don't have to know them. I'll join them in their tears. Uh, but then I'll turn around and say, where are we going? Who are we going to fight? Right. So it's like a combination of like, I'll give you a hug and also MMA. And I think <laughs> I, for me, I think that's what it is. Right. So like what you see with Stephanie is what you get at every given moment. You know, I had a, I was talking to someone earlier today um, about something that I was planning on doing that I know was the right thing to do, but it was going to require a lot of convincing on behalf of the IC. And I know that sometimes my personality is not very well received. Uh, and so this woman told me, she said, Stephanie, you are who you are, right? You are who you are. Do the right thing, lead with what's right, try to convince people. But if they don't, if they're not going to get on, on board, then just fine. Just walk away, do what you can, move forward. But for me, that's that's really what it is. And I also think it's I stopped caring a long time ago because when I was in law school, I went to the University of Maryland School of Law. And when I was in law school, I was told that if I wanted to be successful, I needed to learn about scotch, sports, and cigars. Like, you know, if you're going to be excluded for other things, but if you learn about those things, those three things, you're going to, you know, you're creating spaces for you to engage. And so I chose to learn about those things. And when I was practicing at CIA, it, those things were helpful. Uh, but then I got to the point where I realized too, you know, they, it was, 
I didn't feel like myself. I was wearing only black navy, you know, white. It was a black navy blue um, suits and everything was white shirt. I was pulling my hair back, my nails. Everything about me was very like scripted. Uh, and it's not that that bothered me. Having to do it bothered me a lot. And so I realized at a certain point, I was walking in a room with my paralegal, who was an older white gentleman. And we walk into a room and I'm wearing a suit and he's in a sweatsuit. And the assumption was he's the par- he was the attorney and I was his paralegal. Uh, and I just sat there and laughed, right? And I realized in that moment, it does not matter what I'm wearing. It does not matter where, where I went to school, the fact that I've checked all of these boxes. At the end of the day, things like that are going to happen no matter what. So I might as well be wearing the things that I like and being who I actually am when I'm moving in these spaces. What is the value? And so from that point, that's what I did. You know, I'm still I, I am still a professional person. I still understand where the lines are, but I'm also spending more time thinking about what I'm doing and less about what I'm wearing, right? And less about how people are seeing me. I put far less effort into that. And that has freed up so much space in my mind uh, to think about the mission of national intelligence. And so I think when, you know, what is it that makes me uniquely me? I think it's that I feel so liberated and so free to just do what the hell it is I need to do to get the job done. Um, but that's a privilege. I was not like that when I was a junior officer. That's a privilege that comes with seniority. I see GS7s and GS8s all the time asking me questions about their hair. Can I wear natural hair? Can I do this? Can I do that? And I understand for them that that's a very serious conversation that they're having with themselves. And they don't necessarily have the privilege of living in their authenticity the way that I do. And so for me, it is my responsibility and obligation to show up the way that I do because I didn't have that when I was a GS7, right? So I'm trying to establish new norms and challenge the culture by wearing bright colors, by leaving all of this out, right? By doing what it is that I do, because I think that's really, that's really important. And again, I think that's my obligation. Well, we love you for that. No, oh, thanks. <laughs> well, did you? Okay. <laughs> Katie looked at me, so I thought there was something there. So, Laura, I wanted to ask if you could share some memories um, or times uh, when you have really made a difference as an individual. Yeah, I... Yeah, two years ago when the U.S. military withdrew from Afghanistan, I I don't know of anyone that could look at some of those images on TV and not feel some sort of Mm -hmm. visceral, emotional reaction to see people clinging to a landing gear of a plane taking off, to see mothers passing a a baby over a wall to a U.S. soldier, um, you know, that hits hard. And one thing that I worked on quite extensively in my career in CIA was helping assets be resettled uh, outside of their home countries. And when the withdrawal happened, uh, I started, like a lot of people who had served, constantly scrolling the forums and seeing what What can I do? I have this experience. I know it's relevant. How can I help? And I was about to go to sleep one night and I just, I kept scrolling that one more time, which is a real problem for many reasons, but in this case, it was good. And I saw that there was a three month old um, baby. They were, it was a US citizen. They were trying to figure out how to get the child out because the father 
was in the United States and he had been an interpreter for the US military. And I started thinking back on all the times that I had to sit down with an asset and to include some women and tell them, you must leave everything you know within 48 hours. You can only take the clothes on your back. You have to figure out a way to convince your husband that this is the right answer. Oh, you have a 16 year old child that's really wedded to all his friends. You've got to figure out how to get him to come to and not post about it on Instagram. Mm. Get him to leave his phone. Oh, you have a, a one-year-old child. You're going to have to get that child to come too. And oh, by the way, you can't just get on an airplane. You're going to have to go through a border or a land crossing and you're going to have to go illegally. Don't worry. I have a smuggler ready. Those are very powerful conversations, very difficult conversations to have. And looking at that forum and seeing now's the time where I can have that conversation again and hopefully figure out a way to get some people out. So I was able to, but it was only because I still had some of the networks that I had on the ground in Afghanistan. And I think that what I was so impressed by was the way the U.S. officials on the ground were operating during that really difficult time. The narrative here in the U.S. was very different mm -hmm. than what was happening on the ground there. But to see former fellow colleagues, people I didn't even know, spring into action and figure out ways to get some of those children onto the airport compound, it was, it was really meaningful. You know, I've heard you... Um share that story before. Um, and each time you share it, uh, it hits me in my chest. It, it's never any less powerful. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And Laura, I'm, I'm kind of curious just how that affected you personally, like having those conversations and maybe outside of government, how, like what, what impact did that have on you? It's, it's emotionally draining. Um, and I think the scariest thing that I've always thought for myself is I almost went to sleep that night without helping. And that makes me fearful of who am I? And sometimes you can't, you can't save the whole world. Mm -hmm. And it's especially people in the intelligence community, we feel this compulsion to act, but there's only so much you can do at a certain point. Um, there were a lot of people I didn't get out. I mean, there were lists of people that I, were, I was talking to that, and I knew the Taliban was about to take over the perimeter. I had good information that that was going to happen. And I still have um, on my my iPhone, you know, I have it where a picture pops up every day. Usually it's a picture of my child, but every now and then it'll be a picture of three small Afghan children that I wasn't able to get out. The gate closed right before they were next in line. And instead I spent 30 minutes arguing with a different individual about how he needed to walk forward. I know that there was a guy pointing a gun at him, but trust me, he would not be shot. He just needed to walk and he would go through the gate. Ultimately, he didn't do it. I got to that family, boom, the gates closed. It was too late. And I'll never know what happened to those uh, three children. Two of them were little girls, but they're growing up under the Taliban. So that um, that that is a mental uh, thing that 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 weighs on you. So Megan and Katie, this is why I think what you're doing is so special. Um, I'm, a, I'm a bit more experienced, older. Here's what I know. 
one, it does take individuals to decide to do something in, in almost any venue. So, and one of the most vexing parts of the conversation about the government or the national security community right now is this suggestion that it is anything other than made up of thousands of thousands of people who every day not only do the backbreaking physical labor of keeping America safe, but they aren't just turning a crank or filling a job or punching a time clock. They're doing that and they are making so many decisions to do something with the knowledge they have, the opportunity they have, the network they have to make a difference. I too have heard your story. It it both breaks my heart and makes me incredibly optimistic. And I think what the forum you've created is an opportunity because if you go back and listen to each one of the Iron Butterfly podcasts, you're going to hear every one of those women deciding to not just do a job, but to do something with the opportunity that they have. And I, I, you know, and Stephanie, I know in your case, think about the number of individuals that are thriving because you decided to see them, Mm -hmm. right? So I, I think that is the best thing that you're doing. And I think it's the thing that annoys me when we talk about federal employees, about the bureaucracy, as though it is something other than what I know it to be, which is people putting personal effort in every day. So Laura, Stephanie, I laud you. Mm -hmm. I think something that surprised me about that answer too is I think there's this idea that intelligence is a very analytical and scientific discipline, right? And I think, Laura, each time I hear you talk about your work, I mean, every time I hear all of you talk about your work, your heart is in it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I think it's just really powerful. And I think something else actually that would probably surprise a lot of people is that each of you have served in a capacity of service across administrations, right? So you're, you're a prime example of that. So can you maybe just talk a little bit about that experience and and really what that was like? So I love intelligence. Like it's it's just such a great discipline and whether I lucked into it or not, it certainly suited me like peas and carrots. Um, All you have to do is to see the world as it is rather than you prefer it to be and to represent that truth as hard as you can to make sure that that piece of advantage is available to decision makers. That's all you That's all you have to do. I think sometimes politicians can't imagine that there are people who don't think politically, but intelligence is just such a great discipline because that's all you have to do. And though I can tell you that every president I've served is the same because they're different. And, and that includes former President Trump. He was the same as everyone because he was different. His president's daily brief was different. How he thought about things, his focus was different. And as an intelligence officer, you're just trying to give the wisdom and the perspective to increase the chances that the right thing happens. And, and so I think I think that was easy. I think what I learned in my last job 
serving the Trump administration and, and being in the Oval a lot was you can't be smug about that. So we'll, we'll have, the nation will have its own conversation about the politics of this. But what I will say is when I was sitting in the Oval Office, I was trying to understand what we needed to be for a president who was making the decisions they needed to make. And the former president was thought differently about it. He was all economic where we had been disproportionately political military and trying to catch up to have intelligence that could be impactful to someone who believed they knew something. Um, he was the first president that didn't come in believing that we were the only source of true information. We were one of several competitive. As a matter of fact, he had people that he trusted more than us. That was different for us. And so I think one of the interesting things to anybody who has a craft and a discipline is when someone new presents himself, your job is not to judge them. Your job is to figure out how the hell to do your job mm -hmm. as well as you can without letting yourself off the hook because that isn't how you, not how it was or how you preferred it to be. The other thing that I really learned, and we don't talk about this as much, is intelligence is a dis discipline that requires oversight. Um, because in, in the intelligence community, we're so intentional, you know what I mean by that? We intend to do good. If you, if you sit around us, I mean, we're, we're ready to save the day. We, we, especially if you're in the CIA, you know, we do hard things, we can do anything. And sometimes that intention blinds us to second and third order effects. So oversight is really good. I would say that one of the things that as I now look at our national landscape, our oversight is less of a refuge for the intelligence community than it used to be. And in addition to what we're seeing, I will tell you that that is a loss when they are not providing that balance, just steely-eyed look at whether you should be doing, but if they become part of the political landscape, that's tough. And I think that's something we ought to look about as citizens. So. I loved it. Um, I think it's hard um, when you are not political in a charged political environment to be ruthlessly who you are and to not shy away when someone is suggesting that by doing your job, you're doing something wrong. How do you not be afraid? And I think the answer is you do your best every day and you let the consequences come afterwards. Um, but <laughs> But again, I'll, I'll, I'll harken back to what I said to Laura and Stephanie uh, and um, Fiona Hill uh, in the Ukraine uh, hearings said kind of throwaway line, but I thought it was so good. And that is what we see at the presidential level and in the news is a really, really, really small part of what this national security thing is. And so don't think that that's the whole of it. There are a whole lot of great people working every single day to make this big machine and this big security thing work. So mm -hmm. we ought to look at what's happening. I always tried to see the moment I was in, do the best at what I was doing, but I also come away with an optimistic feel because sometimes what you see is not what is really going on every day. So there is, I, I think... I think you can be hopeful 
because of the people that are, and you, Stephanie, 100%. You're, you're living this every day. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you see it, but man, yeah, you're I, I, you know, toiling really hard to do the right thing every day. And one thing that I get, I get criticized a lot because as the chief of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility for the IC, I get to see kind of where we are with respect to composition, applications, hiring, recruitment, diversity, and leadership. And the num- the fact is our, the numbers are not where they could be, right? We, we don't reflect the nation uh, that we serve. And part of my job is to bring that information to light, leverage data, bring it to light, figure out where we can do better and do better. And I'm often criticized uh, for that, for, for bringing that information to light. Um, and what I don't understand, what I try to get people to understand is that and it is because I love my job is because I love my country so much that I'm out here trying to make her better every single day and making sure that we have a workforce that is respected, credible, talented, that reflects the nation we serve. That is how I'm contributing my piece to this. And so it's when you say that, yes, you know, I, I, I felt that deeply in my heart because it really does hurt when people think that that is in this capacity, that that is what I'm trying to do. Um, that they don't understand that it is it is my deep love and respect for my country that drives me to push so hard on every single one of these initiatives. Wow. Thanks. So this next question is for all three of you. Um, and we're going to start with Laura. But in your opinion, what do you think the greatest U.S. national security threat is today? That we all pray to the trivial. Yeah. And that we keep you know, doom scrolling on our phones about trivial issues under this veneer of a public square when really it's taking away from what makes us so great and what has made us so great in the past is just human relationships and mm-hmm. connection. Mm-hmm. And I, I do fear that we're losing that. We can certainly get it back, um, but we have to be able to move beyond the trivial. So I look at it from a workforce perspective, right? I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And um, I read this article, Glassdoor, the other day, and uh, it said that 76% of job seekers across all demographics, 76% of them are really taking into account a company's DEIA portfolio, the diversity of their leadership, their employee climate scores. 76% of them are looking into that when they consider applying for a job, taking an interview. You can now search. When you're doing a job search, you can now search by DEIA metrics, right? What is the diversity of leadership? What is the, their, you know, are there women in senior leadership roles? How many Black women are in the C-suite? You can sort by these. These are searchable filters on these job search platforms right now. And if 76% of folks are looking into this, right? And then there's even more data that's terrifying, right? 56% of people under 30 will not apply to a company if there's not a DEIA statement on their website. 56% of people under 30 years old won't apply if your position on something is not on the website. That for me is, is, is terrifying, right? Because I'm thinking about the future workforce of the IC. We need the best and the brightest, right? That is who we need here. And if we don't appeal to 76% of the workforce, of the potential workforce, we're not going to get the best and the brightest. We're getting the dregs, okay? And I don't want the dregs. I don't want the dregs doing your job. I don't want the dregs doing your job, right? I want the best of the best to do this work because it's hard work and it requires 
so much from us. And so that really does concern me. So for me, one of the biggest issues is making sure that we reflect the nation we serve, that we are credible and that people want to work for us. And that once we get them in that door, we can keep them because it's not just about getting them in. It's making sure that these officers have an opportunity to thrive, not just survive in the workforce, right? The experience of women across the IC, there's lots of news out there right now. There's lots of different experiences for women and those experiences are not all the same. And so making sure that you can go anywhere in the world and still be safe and be prepared and not have to deal with anyone's nonsense, that matters, right? Being able to have work-life balance, you know, you're not always going to have it. And I think somebody should have told me that sooner. I thought it was always, it's like marriage, you know, they said 50-50, that's crap. Sometimes it's 99-1 and like, that's the balance, right? Um, but, but I think that that's incredibly important. Like we really need to, to, to double down and make sure that we have an environment that people want to come and serve. Because I was in a conversation the other day and someone said, we were talking about the attrition rate and how for the first time ever, we're able to identify that um, minority minority women and um, officers with disabilities, they're the demographics that are the most likely to leave within one year of EOD. We're spending thousands of dollars on their uh, security clearance and on their processing. And that really concerns me. I mean, I think that should concern everyone, right? That that we can't keep these two demographics here. And that is our future workforce um, that we're losing. And I think about that every single day. And I think so to summarize that, that, that's what it is, is making sure that we have a place where people can, well, they want to come, right? So these what brings people to apply to these jobs is their sense of service, right? We They did their part. Their sense of service had them go through that horrible security clearance process and go through the polygraph. Their sense of service brought them here. It is our job to create an environment where we can keep them. Uh, and so that that's my answer. I know it's very long, but for me, making sure we have the workforce of tomorrow, today, is very important. Um, Next. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking about this as you all were talking. Uh, I think these were the last words that I said to former President Trump when he decided that he preferred somebody else in the job besides me. And he asked me what the greatest threat to America was. And I said that we will stop believing in ourselves. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's it. I, I, I worry about that. Consent of the governed. The governed doesn't believe that this is workable. Then they disenfranchise. I worry about uh, young people thinking that nothing's going to change or it's too hard, forgetting that that in America, the citizens have all the power we just got to wield it. So I, I think that's one of the greatest concerns. And we have adversaries and competitors. And for anyone who thinks that we do not, I need you to wake up there. And it's, a, it's, an, it's an issue of their interests, not that if we're small and quiet, it will all be okay. They have interests that they would advance at the expense of ours. But they now have this cool cyber tool that allows them to exert influence and shape our population that tends to be wonderfully naive and believing about anything they see. So this idea of how we keep belief, how we recognize as individuals that we have the power is, is probably my biggest concern. I also, just to pick up on Stephanie, I, part of this is people believing that doing big things 
is both possible and something in which they ought to participate. I'm going to say it again. I say it in every comment. Anyone's best first five years in a job would be well served uh, working in national security. It's a great sense of purpose. You get responsibility early and you get a real sense of what is really at stake and then go do what you want to do. So convincing people that this is worthy um, to do. And then, then I just think the last thing is we have been through moments before. Neither one here. Like when when I was little, Charlie, I'm looking at you. You're probably still younger than I am. But remember <laughs> ducking cover drills? Yeah. Remember, <laughs> remember ducking cover drills? When we were in first and second graders, right? We would hide under our desks to protect us from global thermonuclear war. We we thought it was going to end. And then on 9-11, if you're in our discipline, you didn't think you'd ever be able to look up at the sky again without seeing a plane coming in. And let me tell you, the intelligence community had to reinvent itself to figure out what to do about that threat. We have been in really difficult moments before. This is of different nature, but we can. And so if we don't believe in ourselves, we won't put the effort in. And it is a weird time, y'all. We don't get to draft off the work of our predecessors anymore. This is a time of leadership and creation. And if we don't own that, it will be easy to tear things down. The real challenge is what are we gonna build, but it's worth building on what we've had in the past. So that's what worries me, but I'm still hopeful. I like, I can't be, I can't. <laughs> Brutally optimistic. I, can't, I know, I can't be desperate. I like it. Stephanie, it's worth it. Yeah. Same. Are, there are things that exist. That tequila. There are things that exist <laughs> because I believed I was supposed to do the job I had. And if mm. everyone did that, we're going to be okay. Mm. So, so I actually want to ask about this because you say intelligence is seeing the world as it is, not as you prefer, mm -hmm. but you're also an optimist, right? And so we've just talked about threats. I think one of the things that Megan and I hear a lot from, especially folks who are just starting out in the intelligence community, is that the world is a really scary place. It is. Right now and getting scarier. It is. Right? And so I'm curious what each of you would say to young people who feel discouraged or fearful at the state of the world. Like what, what gives you hope? What gives you that optimism? So mine is do something. See it. It's awful right now <laughs> the world is disrupted things it looks the same but it doesn't the things we used to do don't work anymore our political system is in disarray i hope no one watched the the hearing today with Merrick garland because it just it's it's depressing it is awful and yet do something go into service vote differently you know so the reason i'm optimistic is there is nothing magical it's just work and just deciding that we have to do that. And I take Laura's story and Stephanie's story, and you think about the things that they have done just because they decided to take their personal energy. And what I would tell young people is, yeah, see it, but don't feel flummoxed by it. Just decide that you must affect it and you will be able to. Because I'll tell you this, the talents of our young people, and Stephanie, you probably see this better than I, it's shocking. 
They are so shockingly talented. They're it kind pretty of pisses cool. me off. <laughs> and they do it in like so, five minutes. So, so see it, yes. It is awful, yes. But it's not unhopeful. And all it requires is effort and action and purpose and easy day. For me, it's, you know, as a culture in the United States, like we're not we're not a culture that backs away from a fight. That's just not who Americans are, right? Like we're here for it. And so like I say all the time, the fire that burns me is the fire that fuels me. And so when I speak to young people, that's what I tell them. Like, listen, yeah, things suck. I, and it's getting scarier every day. But are you going to sit down? Are you going to complain? Or are you going to join the fight? Like those are the options that you have. And I think, you know, letting them know, no, you're, when I took this job, my therapist told me, Stephanie, be prepared because you're not going to solve systemic racism in your three-year assignment. <laughs> and she said, you need to accept that. She's like, uh -huh. you know, this has come. Oh, she's like, so you need to satisfy yourself with the little wins, right? So create little, you know, the, the systemic things that you can control. And so that is what I try to tell them. Like, no, you are not going to solve the world's problem in your career here, but you're going to contribute to the fight. They're going to contribute to some amazing things. And when you can walk into BJ's and go shopping and not have to worry about things landing and bombs going off left and right, when you can put your kids on that school bus and then wait there and not have to worry about things coming out of left and right for, for you that those are those moments when you know that you've joined the fight and that you'll be incredibly proud but those moments are earned and so helping them understand that their beautiful plush lives that we live here in the u.s this does not just happen this is by design and the people who do that the reason they have those privileges is because of people who sit in these chairs because of people who are going to work every single day and braving 495 and sitting in that traffic because they believe in what we're doing. And so I really do try to impress upon them that you're going to complain or you're going to join the fight, you know? And if you're not, and if you're going to just complain, cool, we don't need you anyway. You can be the dregs. <laughs> well, don't they don't send me on many recruiting trips anymore. The one modifier to have to that is, I think what's interesting about this world is that um, national security is much bigger. It's a much bigger tent. Mm. And the national security decision makers are not those limited in governance. I would say disproportionately they're in the private sector and in the, in the citizenry. And so there are a lot of ways to join the fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, the other thing is just my experience and you see more than I do, man, we are all so much more the same, mm. want the same things want the same outcomes, want the same safety, want to help each other. Want to... And even I had a friend, Laura, it was someone who was in the DO as well, that once said to me, Sue, everyone believes they're the good guys. <laughs> I think there is phenomenal opportunity at the individual level to connect. And it's bigger than just governmental work. Yeah. I mean, Yes, the world is a very scary place, but it's also a really beautiful place. Yeah. And, you know, just thinking back on some of my travels and where I've found myself in the world and, and back alleyways or um, remote parts of war zones. And if I can go sit down with a, essentially a, a terrorist and we can come to some sort of agreement and you I can, can get this. them to provide secrets. You, you everyone else can do hard things too. <laughs> like this is what, what it does require is be willing to be uncomfortable. Oh yeah. And I, I do think that that's something we really need to work on uh, as a as a country. But that's you know, that's a very general thing to say. But how do you how do you work on that as an individual? 
and putting yourself purposefully in positions where, yeah, it's a little bit uncomfortable right now. I'm sitting across the table with someone that I vehemently disagree with. Uh, but you know what? You can find some commonality. And as you work on that, you might find your way to more than you expected mm -hmm. and taking that ugly and turning it into something beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I think ease and neatness are overrated as as uh, as end states. So I'm wondering if you know. I think I just want to pull this thread a, a little bit further. And you know, we're here um, at the Bush School, and we have a lot of students in the audience, and that will be listening because we're we're taping this. And so, if you could leave them with one final message, um, what would that be? You can make a difference. Yeah. You know, there's nothing about me that was designed for the career, the life that I've been graced with. Just woke up every day trying to do something with the space I had. Mm -hmm. So just, you can make a difference. And you don't know how big that's going to be, and you don't have to imagine big on your first day. Just do something with the space you have, and it'll... It, and you'll find your way. I think um, mine would be uh, to remind everyone that the IC is a place for you. Like you can have a career. And I think there's so many people think like, oh, well, everyone is a spy. We have lots of glorified paper pushers in the IC. But I also think it's important, you know, so that, that the people understand that, that they see themselves here, right? I hear all the time from folks, if I can't see her, then I can't be her. Right. And so for me, it's incredibly important. You know, we're working on that. Right. We're working on getting all the people in the right places. Um, but I say that because for a long time, I didn't even apply to the IC. I'm the first generation American daughter of two South American immigrants. And I didn't know what CIA was. I didn't know what the IC was. Uh, all I knew was what I saw on TV. Uh, and, you know, I was like, I don't want that. I can't shoot a gun. This isn't me. But that's you don't have to do that. Everybody does not have to do that. Um, and I almost didn't apply because I have family members who are undocumented. I have family members who are, have been to prison. And I thought that the IC wasn't a place for me, that there was nothing I had, that I didn't have anything to contribute. Uh, and also that the IC wouldn't want me, right? That they wouldn't want this. I haven't seen someone like this. I didn't know about that background and that you could have those things as a part of your story and still be here. Um, and if it wasn't for the cultural competence of my recruiter at the time, who could kind of feel that hesitance, that reluctance in me to apply, uh, she's the one that pretty much told me, she said, Stephanie, listen, like I can, you know, she, she didn't want to straight up say like, do you have undocumented people in your family? <laughs> she didn't want to say that, but I, she did want to let me know. She said, Stephanie, I want you to just remember, we care about you, whether you're the kind of person that can be trusted with secrets, whether you're the kind of person that we can have in this community. If you've got family members who are doing other things, don't worry about that. That's that, that has nothing to do with you. You know, if you've got Fidel hiding in your basement, perhaps that's another story. But she was able to pick up on that reluctance, right? And if it wasn't for her, for that, that was probably a 90 second conversation. If she had not said that to me, then I wouldn't be here today. Right. And so I what I want you all with students to take away from that is like, I want you to see yourself here. I don't care if you're an accounting major, business major, whatever you do, analyst that I see is a place for you, no matter what your background is. Right. If you have a, a desire to serve, this is a great place to do that. And I don't want your background or your perception of who does and does not work here. I don't want that to keep you from putting in that application uh, and making the first step. 
Oh, go ahead. It, it, picking up on that. I, I lived in fear for quite some time and not because of, you know, who I was out meeting in the shadows, but because I was secretly gay and I was terrified mm. that I was going to lose my security clearance. It gave me a real appreciation for when people feel like they have to hide something. And you know what all spies are hiding? The fact that they're spying for the U.S. government. So I learned based on my own fears how to help other people overcome theirs. And eventually I realized that it was okay to be gay in, in the CIA. <laughs> it's okay um, to be gay at CIA. I remember I, 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 I had a, a background investigator come to renew my background and I, I finally told her, I said, you know, I'm, I'm getting married to a woman soon. And she was very young, probably no older than 27. And she just looked at me and said, that's wonderful. Congratulations. And that was the end of the conversation. And it that was a burden that I carried around for quite some time. And so the point is, it is a big tent. We need all sorts of people in the IC. I think, you know, the reason, one of the reasons Katie and I started this podcast was to highlight all of what you just said that there are all different types of people, all different types of jobs coming from all different walks of life. And you can see yourself in, in, in these women. And that's what we wanted to show with, I know it's a shameless plug, but it's, it's also the truth. Um, you know, we wanted, it's not just, you know, um, analysts and, you know, operators and engineers, you could be a pipe fitter, you could be a, you know, you could, there are lots of different jobs. So I appreciate those answers. Um, well, unfortunately we've come to the end. And for those who know us well, you know that we do have one final question and um, it's going to be easy for them now, but we've heard that uh, when we, when we first sit down with our guests and we ask this question, they say it's the hardest question that we ask. And so with keeping with the theme and the name of Iron Butterfly, um, we ask the guests to give us, if they could give um, themselves a code name, what would it be and why? And since all three of these women have been on the podcast before, they already have their code names, but I'm going to ask them to share what they are and why they chose that. So let's start with you, Laura. Firefly. And it's a code name my wife gave me. Uh, she said, someone who operates in the dark, but then lights it up. Love it. I know. They always, every single time, every Katie time. and I go, oh my gosh. I love it. So mine is Mija. And in Spanish, Mija is like my daughter, my love. It's a term of endearment. My parents call me that. Uh, and uh, I did this video for CIA where I talked about myself, right? Just my story. Uh, and in that video, I wore a shirt that said, command your space, know your worth. Mija, you're worth it. Uh, and that video went viral. Lots of people hated it, um, but you didn't hate it. So thank you for that op-ed. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so for that, and then, uh, so for my mom, for that video, because that was such an impactful moment in my life. I mean, being criticized for just being me by everyone on the planet uh, was really hard, but I was proud because we made that video, we made DEIA a national, an international conversation. It was trending number four worldwide on Twitter. 
we got the world talking, right? About a woman just saying, being a mom and doing and struggling with mental health and doing all these things and still being a badass national security officer. Uh, and so that makes me incredibly proud. And then uh, lastly, Miha, because I had the opportunity to meet Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor back in 2016. Uh, and I was just so overwhelmed. I, I, it, I'm not usually at a loss for words. And she came up to me as I was trying to speak. I could not get anything out of my mouth. And she just put her hand on my back and she said, Miha, it's okay. And I just started bawling, crying, right? Because again, if you don't see her, you can't be her. And so I'm looking at this woman who shares so much about, so much about of my identity and my story and my experience and being a Supreme Court justice. And she said this word to me that is something that my mother uses um, was very powerful. So mine is Simple Patriot. Um, uh, when I was confirmed, um, my opening statement said, simply put, I love America. I love being part of something that our founders envisioned and with which now I am entrusted. When I didn't get to finish my tenure, it was really hard. You know, for other political appointees, they lost a job. I lost the love of my life. And a friend of mine gave me, uh, she'd gotten a business card sized piece of metal uh, engraved with the, those words that I said at my hearing to remind me who I was and why I was there. And none of that had changed. Mm -hmm. So simple patriot. Firefly, Miha, and Simple Patriot, thank you so much for just an incredible episode. You all have now been on Iron Butterfly twice, and we might have to ask you to come back a third time. Well, and for those of you that don't know, <laughs> we are producing a documentary um, about 10 of the Iron Butterflies, and these three women are a part of the documentary as well. Um, so, so stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly Podcast. To learn more about Iron Butterfly Media, visit our website at www.ironbutterflymedia.com. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. To find out more about AWIC, email amazingwomen.ic at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And lastly, we want to thank Amanda Young, Gracie Richburg, Four Bear Stories, National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School, Amazing Women of the IC, and the Texas A&M Bush School for hosting our first ever live podcast episode. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.